Welcome to the Halakha Hour here on JRoot Radio. We are live today. We are um, broadcasting live on Ted Zain Sivan, June 22nd, Tavshin Ain Vav. And we are continuing in our Halakhot. But first of all, we'd like to give the regular introductions before we begin. The numbers to the studio is 718-683-5858. And the following number, I'll say slowly, 347 927 8398. That's the number if you'd like to text in. And you can text in at any time during the show. And please text in if you have any questions or comments. Today's subject, we are continuing from last week. Unfortunately, last week we weren't able to air on the Halakha hour at uh, the evening. A little bit of a complication. But in any case, um, those who missed last week's class, last week we discussed or we began already discussion of the 39 Milachot. Just a little bit of a quick review from last week. Last week we spoke about the 39 Melachot, much more about the background of the Melachot, really about Shabbat, the importance of Shabbat, the stringency of Shabbat. The few points that we need to just give you as an introduction before we begin is the source of the 39 Melachot. We know that the 39 Melachot, 39, are considered the, the source to all the laws of the things that one is not allowed to do on Shabbat, and they all learned from what was done in the Mishkan, when they built the Mishkan in the, in the desert, in the times of Moshe Rabbeinu, in the times when the Jewish people came out of Egypt, all of the 39 Milachot are learned from there. And we explained how last week. Now, today's class, Bezat Hashem, we have a little bit more details to speak about, or a li- little bit of background about the 39 Milachot in general. And we hope that today, Bezat Hashem, we'll begin discussing the the actual 39 Melachot, what they are, a little bit, we'll speak as we go along and we'll explain what we want to do. I want to point out that this is not to say that our class is a full, full explanation of everything of the 39 Melachot. There are so many details. And if we speak about all the details, it'll be too much information and we'll just get so confused. And I know that there's a whole mixed, diverse crowd that's listening to this. And although some might appreciate it, some may not appreciate it, we try to make it something that something that could be beneficial to everybody. Men, women alike, uh, those who are a little bit more advanced in learning, those who are weaker in learning, something that's we try to make it. Now, I won't be able to, you know, hit, hit on, the, on the nail every time. I won't be able to say something that's really, everybody will be, um, you know, will be able to follow or understand. I try to make it as simple as I can. So, with your permission, Mr. Hashem, we'll continue from last week, and I hope really that we, I don't speak over anybody's head. I'll try to go very slowly. A little bit of ideas before we move on to the explanation of the Tenai Milachot, and we'll speak about the Avot and Toldot. The Mishnah in Masechet Shabbat, which talks about the 39 Milachot, the Mishnah introduces the 39 Milachot in the following words. Pay attention to the words. I'll read it in Hebrew, and then we'll translate Mishnah says, Avot melachot al arba'im hasir ahat. The father melachot, I'm stressing the word av, the father. The father melachot are 40 minus 1. I know there's a big question. If it's 39, why can the Mishnah just say 39? Why does it have to say 40 minus 1? That's a little bit more for a Musar or Mahshabah class. It's not for us. We're focusing on the first part when it says Avot melachot. Why didn't the Mishnah just say simply, Melachot, the Melachot of Shabbat are 39? 
Why did I have to say in such a way, avot melachot? So the Gemaram Baba Kamat says to teach you that if there's a father, there's got to be a son. Who's going to celebrate Father's Day? You don't tell a single guy, 16 years old, who's never been married before, and you don't tell him, hey, happy Father's Day. You know, it's not July 4th. You know, it's uh, happy Independence Day, even though the guy may not be American. This is Father's Day. You got to be a father to be a Father's Day. That means you got to have children. And that's what the Gemara says. If the Mishnah says that there's avot melachot, there are 39 avot melachot, must be there, there is a tolada. We're introduced to this concept called the tolada. Tolada simply translated means like the offspring, the, the, the children. And what it means is that not to conf- that, that person should not think that the only things that are forbidden on Shabbat are 39 things. Yeah, I heard the whole Rabbi Shur, he said 39, he kept on saying 39. It's a pasuk, it's a... Okay, but say that, I accept, but it's only 39. No, that's not true. There's avot, and there's also toladot. In fact, Daruk HaShulchan, he quotes the Talmud Yerushalmi as saying that Rabbi Yohanan and Rish Lakish, when they were explaining the tolada of each of the avot menachot. That means each 39 is not anymore 39 isolated acts. Rather, the 39 menachot are 39 categories of isur or forbidden things that one is not supposed to do on Shabbat. When Rabbi Yohanan Rishakish would expand upon these categories and they explain what the tolada is, the Yerushalmi says that they came up that for each of the avot menachot, each of the categories of what's forbidden on Shabbat, they came up with another 39 tolada, another 39 different acts that they themselves are also forbidden in the Uraita. Now we got to understand what's a tolada, okay, what's, a diff- what's an av, what's a tolada, what makes something an av, what makes something a tolada, and what's a difference to me. Although today it doesn't make such a big difference, you know, the difference of what's an av and what's a tolada. We'll speak about more later. Uh, the, the difference really makes a difference when there's a beta mikdash, and the second difference will be for the person in charge of Gehinam, as a closing where Rabbi says, just to know what the temperature is going to be. Uh, you know, if it's an av or tolada, but it's anyway. And the hayub, just to say, as what what kind of korbanot we have to bring, but still, it's all forbidden anyway. But we wanted to stress this point is that person should know that's not only 39 acts are forbidden on Shabbat. Many, many, many details are forbidden on Shabbat. And one should not think that if it's not part of the 39 list, oh, it must be it's not Asur. Or as unfortunately some people say, ah, it's Dirabanan, come on, Rabbi, it's only Dirabanan. Right? Dirabanan is also by itself is very, very stringent. Don't think just because something is Dirabanan. Dirabanan is for the rabbis, the post scheme to know when there's a special circumstance and how to juggle around the different isurim and when they could be lenient, when they could be ma'amir, whatever it may be, the, the, whatever psak they need to come up with. But for us, what's forbidden is forbidden. But we still need to know, as Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky says, that the part of the Mizav Tamut Torah is to know also the source of everything. We shouldn't go around doing just what we're doing without understanding. No, the Torah wants us, Hashem wants us to study the Torah, to understand the sources of everything. So this is why we're taking out time to not just list the 39 melachot, but to explain also the definition of what's an av melacha and what is a tolada. Now, in definition, the avot melachot are basically things that were done in the mishkan. 
Avot melachot, again, is things that the actual act were actually done in Mishkan. But this is not to say that there's only 39 avot melachot. That's not true. Because there could be other things that are also an av melacha, although it may not have necessarily been done in the Mishkan. Let's give you an example. There's a mahlokid we can learn about later on. The 11th melacha, was it cooking or was it baking? There's a mahlokid which one it is. We'll talk about it much more later on. But according to the opinion that says it was cooking, that the melacha that was done in the Beit HaMikdash was cooking, they cooked the uh, special fruits that from them they got the dye and they got the colors, what they needed to color in the in the Mishkan. According to that opinion, he'll agree that baking is also an av melacha, although it may not have necessarily been done for the Mishkan. So baking and cooking, which are pretty much the same thing. One is for bread and what is for done with through liquid are both considered avmelachot even though according to some opinions only one of them was performed in the Mishkan so that's important to keep in mind that the avot melachot are also not 39 there's many many things that could be in avot and the tolda is just a subcategory we'll explain what the difference if it's avot tolda in a second let's start with the avmelacha in avmelacha by but to classify it, we have to classify it like this. An Avmelacha, besides the 39 that are listed, could also be an Avmelacha if it's identical to the 39 on the list in action and in purpose. Again, besides the 39 Melachot listed, other things could also qualify as an Avmelacha, even though they're not on the list of 39. If they're identical to any of the Avot Melachot, in action, in the way you do it, and in the purpose of what you want to do. Also, even the, uh, even the, another thing could also be an av, even if it's only identical in purpose. The action may be different, but if it's only identical purpose, it will also be considered an av melacha. Let's give you an example. One of the first melachot that we're going to speak about is the melacha of horesh. Horesh means plowing. Well, plowing is a person goes to the ground where there's, I mean, regular dirt, and he softens up the, the, the ground, the dirt, so this way it'll be easier to plant. In the Mishkan, when they wanted to plant, as we'll soon see why, they wanted to plant, so they had to soften up the ground first, and then to throw in the seeds. So when was the melacha of Horesh plowing done in the Mishkan? It was done to plow the field in order, in order to make it ready for planting. What about if a person goes to the field, and he digs out a hole from the field in order to plant. Another way that you can plant is, instead of softening up the ground, take a shovel, stick it into the ground, take out a little bit of dirt, and then throw the seed inside. That's also a form, that's also plowing. And it's not a told that, even though that act was not done in the, in the Mishkan, in the Mishkan, they just softened up the ground. Over here, by they, they took out the dirt, even by taking out the dirt, since... You're doing, the, you're accomplishing the same purpose, which is preparing the ground to be able to be planted. That's also considered an av melacha. So what's a tolada? A tolada is the exact opposite of an av, although again, it's still forbidden with deoraita. A tolada is as follows. A tolada is when the act itself is exactly as the av. That means in the action that you're taking on Shabbat is exactly what the Av would be, but for completely different purpose. 
For example, for example, let's say a person has a field. He walks into his field and he sees that the field has a lot of holes and it's not straight. There's a lot of bumps here and there. So he goes on Shabbat and he wants to straighten out the field. Not to be not to make it ready for planting. He's not planning to plant anything in his backyard. He wants to go out to his backyard where there's all dirt. He just wants to make it even. He has his grandchildren coming over. He doesn't want them to trip. He doesn't want them to get dirty in the mud. So he straightens out. He goes around and he straightens out his whole backyard on Shabbat. Not for the purpose of planting. That is a tolada of the menacha of Horesh. Horesh is done for the purpose of preparing your field to plant. He's not preparing it to plant, but still, he's adjusting the field. He's doing work on the field, on the backyard in this case, and he's preparing it. So therefore, it's considered a tolada. A tolada because it's the same action. You're doing some work with the dirt, but it's for a different purpose. You're not doing it for the purpose that was done in the Mishkan, which is to allow the field to be planted. You're doing it just to make your field look nice. Now, in both cases, you should know, it's still asur midoraita. So, why are we explaining? What is the difference? Who cares? What's the difference in midoraita? And in fact, why is the Gemara wasting time telling me, has Hashem wasting time? I'm just, this is part of the question, you know, that's I'm preparing. So, why is the Gemara telling us now the difference between Tolada and Av, if any idea in the day, they're all assumed right. Like you said, anyway, in Gehenam, it's all going to be the same thing. So who cares? We're anyway not forbidden to do it. And it's not like over here, did a banan, did a it's, it's all Asur. So the answer to that is the difference between Av and Tolada will be with the, when we understand the following question. Let's ask you a separate question like this If a person on Shabbat does two different melachot beshogeg, Okay, two different melachot beshogeg. How many korbanot is he obligated to, bl- to bring? Do you say that, you know what, at the end of the day he was mehalel Shabbat, it's only one Shabbat that he was mehalel. He desecrated the Shabbat. So bring one, because you're desecrating one entire Shabbat. Or do you say, no, you bring two separate korbanot because you've done two avot, two separate avot. Now, to answer this question, we need to give you a little bit of a background and we have to review a little bit what we said last week. Last week we explained that in desecrating Shabbat, it could be done, a person could do it in one of four ways. The three ways which are relevant to us is, oh, let's make it two ways, let's make it a little simpler. The two ways which are relevant to us is either intentional, intentional by definition in halakha means, which means it means that you're doing it with the knowledge that it's forbidden and with the knowledge, with, with the knowledge that it's Shabbat. When a person does an intentional, his punishment will be karet, if there are no witnesses. And if, it was, if there were witnesses who warned him about desecrating Shabbat, he does it anyway, then his punishment is sekilah, where the beddin executes him. Had the person done the melakha, however, bishogeg, and bishogeg, like we explained, has a specific definition. Bishogeg could be one of two ways. Either that the person forgot at the time of the desecration of Shabbat, he forgot that today is Shabbat. He thought that was a Sunday, Monday, Friday, I don't care. He thought it was any other day besides Shabbat. Or that he knew it was Shabbat, but he forgot at the moment, he didn't realize when he's doing the Melacha, he didn't realize that this thing is Asur. He never learned this Halakha. He never knew that there's an Isur of 
plowing your field on Shabbat. So that's called shogeg. So therefore, our question when we say how many korbanon does a person have could only be uh, could, could only be applicable in the case where a person does many melachot b'shogeg. Because if a person does many melachot b'mezid, so anyway the punishment is the same. When you kill him twice, is hayab mita if there were witnesses. So let's say the guy put on a fire and he cooked and he smoked a cigarette. So he did many melachot. If he did it all intentional with the knowledge that Shabbat and with the with the knowledge that this is forbidden. So anyway, he's going to be either executed or karet. One punishment takes care of all the avirot that he's done. The question by us is when a person did not have the realization. Since he didn't realize at the time when he performed all the different isurim on Shabbat, do we say it's one korban for the whole entire Shabbat or it's one korban per melacha? So the rule is like this. That the korban that person is hayab for desecrating Shabbat is one korban per yedi'ah. I'm saying this in Hebrew. I'll explain in a second. Again, it's one korban per yedi'ah. Which means, if a person, when a person comes to the realization that he's committed an isur beshogeg, that he's committed some sort of forbidden act on Shabbat, he desecrated Shabbat beshogeg, that realization is what gives him the obligation to bring a korban. It's per realization. This is what the Gemara says when a person, for example, performs many different isurim be'alem ehad for those who study Gemara. Now this is, I know, relevant to more to people who are, to the men who are studying the halakha. So ladies, don't put me off yet, just yet. Uh, I'm going to finish this in two minutes. I just have to explain to the men. When the Gemara says that avar avirot ehad had means they didn't have any realization doing when he did all these melachot. For example, let's say a person woke up. He completely did not know it was Shabbat and he wanted to make himself an egg salad. So pay attention to what he did. He woke up in the morning. He took the eggs, took a pot, filled up the water. And now he went to the gas and he put on the fire. Okay? When he put on the fire, what melachot did he do? It's sort of habara. You're not allowed to light up fire on Shabbat. Okay, then he takes a pot with the water and the eggs inside of it. He puts it on top of the stove where the fire is lit. Now what melacha did he do? Now he did the melacha of bishul. He cooked the eggs. After the eggs were ready, he took them out. And then he wanted to make an egg So he crushed everything together with the shells and the eggs. And then afterwards, he started separating. He took away all the shells from the mixture and he threw the shells away. And now he did the melacha of borer because he separated the bad from the good. And then afterwards, okay, he was tohen. He ground up the, 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 what's called, the vegetables, the onions, and very, very, very finely. And he mixed it together with the, with the, with the salad. And now he has with his mayonnaise. I don't want to get into that right now. But let's say he put mayonnaise also. According to some opinions, it might be less. In any case, he made his egg salad with Eggs that he cooked on Shabbat, plus the onions that he diced on Shabbat, and he mixed it all up, and he has it all ready there. And he completely forgot that Shabbat. After he's done with this whole project, an hour later, he's looking out his window, and he sees people walking in their suits, and then he says, oh my gosh, what's today? He looks at the calendar, and he realizes, today is Shabbat. So there he just did how many melachot he did. When he put on the fire, it's Habara, one. When he cooked the eggs, it's another melacha, that's two, that's bishul. 
when he took away, he separated the shells, that's bore, that's three. And when he diced the onions, that's four. That's already four melachot that he did already. How many korbanot does he bring? So we go back to the rule. It's one korban per yedi'ah. This realization on Shabbat that he realized right now at 10.30, an hour after he woke up, after he finished his whole exile, that today is Shabbat, that realization obligates him in one korban because it's one yedi'ah. So although he did four different avot melachot, four ways that he desecrated Shabbat, still, as far as obligations or how many korbanot he has to bring, he has to bring only one korban since there was only one yedi'ah. There was one realization that he had. Now let's give you another scenario where the same thing happened, but the person would be obligated for korbanot. You should figure it out already. But in case you, you're, you're not figuring out or nobody's calling in to say anything because you know we don't take phone calls in the show. But so the let's go like this. If a person now woke up thinking that it's Friday, he says, oh, I have a lot of guests coming on Shabbat. Let me prepare an egg salad. He goes, he puts on the fire. Right? Now, after he put on the fire, his wife wakes up. She says, Yankala, it's Shabbos. What are you doing? He says, oh, Shabbos? Oy. He realized it's Shabbat. So the right away, right away, he's Hayab in Korban for putting on the fire. Now, he's so shocked by this. He goes back to the kitchen. He's doing tachnun. I don't know. He's saying vidu. He, he can't believe his mahalei Shabbat. Right? He's overwhelmed. He completely takes a deep breath and he you know, calms down. He brings himself down to, to, to this world. Okay, fine. He's now able to continue. But doing this exercise of calming down, he forgot that Shabbat again. He sees the eggs in the pot, the row. He takes the pot and he puts it on the fire. And he's cooking the egg salad. Now his wife comes and says, didn't I tell you Shabbos? Oh, I forgot again. And now he realized again that he didn't, he forgot that was Shabbat. So now he cooked the eggs and he also put on the fire. But since there was a knowledge in between, there was a realization in between the two milachot that was Shabbat, so then he's already hayam to Kurbanot. Fine, the eggs are cooked. He says, okay, anyway, I cooked it. Let me, let me as well benefit from it. Let me make it excellent. I'm not going to eat it today. I'll eat it after Shabbat. So now he's doing borer. He's separating the shells from the egg. Not for immediate use, but for a later use. He's doing it for after Shabbat. That's already borer. Now, he didn't know this was Asur. And then he goes on, he says, okay, let me dice the onions. Now, before he dices the onions, his wife tells him, you know, I just heard on the radio that there was a, there's a lecha class, and it says over there that you're not allowed to separate the shells from the egg if you're not planning to use it for an immediate meal. And since you're planning to uh, use the eggs only tomorrow, you've done an isur. Now there's a third realization. He didn't know that Borer was Asur. And therefore, that's the third Korban. Okay, he says, okay, let me as well get the onions ready. He starts dicing the onions. He says, sorry, dicing the onions. I also heard that on the radio. You're not allowed to dice the onions. Onions grow from the ground. And when you dice it so finely, that's Nisudoraita of Tohen. You, you ground up the onion. That's also Nisudoraita. So the same scenario, the guy made the same egg salad as he did in the first case. But over here, since there was a knowledge in between, although at the moment that he desecrated Shabbat, at the moment that he put on the fire, and at the moment that he cooked the eggs, he didn't know that was Shabbat. And at the moment that he um, diced the onions, or when he peeled the eggs, he didn't know that these acts were forbidden. They were done by Shogeg. But since there was a realization between each one, in that case, it would be Hayat to bring 
four separate korbanot. So again, the rule is, it's that a korban comes per realization, per knowledge of the isur. When a person comes to that realization that he's done an isur on Shabbat, that obligates him with a korban. Whether he did many isurim in that period of time when, when, when he didn't have any knowledge, or whether he's done only one isur. It's one korban per yedi'ah. The Gemara says that the maximum amount of korbanot that a person could possibly bring per one Shabbat is 39. That means if he was mehalel Shabbat by performing all the 39 melachot, then the maximum amount that he could bring is, like we said, is 39 melachot. I mean 39 korbanot. Now this is a question. We just said two seconds ago, well not two seconds ago, it's more like now, 10 minutes ago, is that there's not only 39 Acts. There's not only 39 things that are forbidden. There are many avod and there are many toldot. So when the Gemara said that there's 30, the maximum amount is 39, why? I could show you a case where a person was mehalel Shabbat throughout the whole entire Shabbat and every second he's been warned that this is Asur and he keeps on forgetting and he keeps on making Isurim throughout the whole Shabbat. Why you tell me that there's only 39? We could find, we said, for each melachah, we could find 39 toladot, and they're all asudarat, and they're all hayab korban. So for that, we come to our answer from our original question. Our original question were, was, how many, uh, uh, what's, it what's the difference between toladot and korban? And here's the answer, Rabotai. And this is why this whole introduction was, was done. The answer is that you only bring separate korbanot for different avot, or for different toledot from different avot. That means, like we said, the avot, you have to look at them as categories. These are 39 categories of melachot are forbidden. A tolda is a subcategory. Both assume medeoraita, both forbidden from the Torah, and both avot and toledot will make a person obligated in bringing a korban. The difference will be, though, if a person does a tolada, two toldot, one from different av, each one from a different av, then he'll be hayav, two korbanot. But if the two toldot that he does are from the same av, then he'll be hayav, only one korban, even though he did two different esurim. Let's give an example. Let's say there's a melacha called zoraya, that's planting seeds into the ground. Okay, that's the av melacha. So, Let's say a person um, pruning. He was he went to his field. He went to his tree, and there was some you know the, the, the too many branches on the field. It's not allowing some of the branches to grow good. So he started pruning his tree. He started cutting off some of the branches to allow the tree to grow better. So the act of pruning, in which is done, which is basically cutting off the branches, is done for the sake of allowing the other branches to grow better. So that's. A form of zoreat because it's allowing it to grow. So a person, that means without realization, plants seeds and he does pruning on Shabbat. So he did an av and it's tolada. They're both under the same category. In that case, he's only going to be hayab one korban. But let's say a person wrote, in Hebrew, he wrote two letters. He wrote, let's say, the word av and he also erased what he wrote, in order that he should write a different word. So there he did two melachot, two separate melachot, two separate melachot, an av and an av. One is an av of kotev, 
one is an av of mohek, both these cases, both these things will obligate him to the separate korbanot. But not only that, if he has done two toldot, one is the tolda of kotev, and one is the tolda of mohek, he'll also be obligated to bring two separate korbanot. Why? Because the toldot come from different avot. And therefore, we come back to the rule of the Gemara. When the Gemara says that the, the maximum amount of korbanot the person will bring on Shabbat is 39, it means no matter what he does on Shabbat, it's got to be categorized under one of these 39 categories. And therefore, although he can do many toldot, if they're all falling under the same category, he'll only be obligated to bring one korban for that. Even though he has knowledge in between each one, and if they're different categories, then it's based on the categories. But the maximum amount of categories, like we said, is going to remain at 39. Okay. That is an important introduction, not necessarily for halakha lema'aseh, but in general understanding the melachot of Shabbat. And now, we'll get to the section, and that is the actual 39 melachot. We're going to talk about now, we're going to list the 39 melachot. And I just want a word of caution, or disclaimer, this list over here, what we're, what we're going to do, we're going to actually list the 39 melachot. Each melacha, we're, dis- we're only giving a very, very shallow explanation. The full details and full understanding of the, uh, of the application of the melacha could only happen when we discuss all these halachot in detail when we get up to them. As we usually do, we usually learn from the Benish Hai. So when you get to a Bazat Hashem in the Sefer Benish Hai, Different melachot are brought in different parashiyot. And we'll talk more in detail about that specific melacha. We'll always come back to the background. We'll explain that melacha again. And then we'll discuss all the details. What's Asum Midoraita? What's Asum Midirabanan? The application in, in, in our days. Right now what we're doing is simple. We're telling you what the melacha is. And we're going to bring three things. Number one, we're going to define the melacha and how it was done in the Mishkan. Number two, we're going to give an example of which means also and finally number three we're going to select random halachot that are under that category like we, like we explained the 39 melachot are really 39 categories of Yisur Shabbat these examples that we're going to give of practical halakha these things could be could range anything from mamash and Yisur Deoraita could be even av melacha to anywhere that could be even just a stringency a humra or an Yisur Derabanan it could be anywhere in between we selected random things. Some things may be more familiar. Some things people may not know about. Again, we're not here to discuss the full detail. You may hear some things. Say, wow, well, it's, it's not our style. We usually like to elaborate very well. But in such a class, we can't elaborate because we'll never finish. The Chodesh Shabbat never finished. They're full of details. So we'll talk about them again in their appropriate time. In order to make the Melachot of Shabbat easier, 39, a list of 39 is very hard to remember. So, I've seen in uh, Rabbi Ribiats, Rabbi, by the way, if you want a great book, a lot of people always ask for a book in English, or many halachot, you want a really fantastic book in halacha on the 39 melachot, Rabbi David Ribiat from Lakewood put out a four-volume book many, many years ago on the 39 melachos, and really he's done a fantastical job. Unbelievable, really, really great job. A big Yashukawa and Hazak Baruch to him. And the definition, it's so important, as we're going to soon see, when we talk about the Melachot, to define it in the proper terminology. Because a little bit of a change from the exact definition could completely change the Halakha. 
So therefore, he's done a really, really fantastic job. Anybody who wants to get a good knowledge from that, you look in that book. And although it's called the 39 Melachos, yes, it is Ashkenazi. And although we may not hold of everything that's mentioned in there, that means us Sfaradim. Well, first of all, if you're Ashkenazi, it's fantastic. It's great for you. But even if you're not Ashkenazi, if Sfaradim, listen, if anything, they're going to probably be more Mahmir than Mekir. Okay? They're gonna probably, in the book, he's going to probably bring more things uh, things that are the Ashkenazi are more stringent in than leniencies. If you're doing a Humran Shabbat, no, no, Baruch Hashem, it's a Humran, not a Kula. And if you have anything that seems a little bit fishy, so you go ask your rabbi, do we hold like this? We don't hold like this. Is this fine? Is this what we do? We don't do. But otherwise, to get a good knowledge, especially such a uh, neat and orderly fashion of explaining the 39 milachot and all the applicable things. Now, for those who understand Hebrew, you want a good Hebrew book. A sefer that speaks about the 39 milachot, for, especially for Sefer Adim, what I really liked is Menuhat Ahaba. The whole Menuhat Ahaba, he has three volumes. Volume two and three is set up according to the 39 milachot and all the full details. He tells you what's halachalim ha'aseh. Those who like to delve deeper, he has notes on the bottom, the sources of where he gets his halacha. Very, very, again, also very clear and very, very neat. Uh, we looked at many other books as well, but thorough, such books that speak so thoroughly about the halakhot, about the subjects, and in a way that's not so confusing, something that r- most people could read, I recommend these two books, one in English, one in Hebrew, the 39 Malachos for by David Ribiyat, and Sefer Menuhat Ahaba by Moshe Levi Zatzal. So, taking from Rabbi Ribiyat, what he did is he, he categorized the 39 Melachot, the 39 categories, into four categories. To make it easier, to make, you know, just to remember the 39 Melachot, the four categories of Melachot. The 39 Melachot fall into four categories. And remember, where did all these Melachot come from? Where did the rabbis come up with these 39 Melachot? Is it something that they made up? No, Hazrat Shalom. But rather it was taken from from um, again, sorry. Where was it taken from? It was taken from the Mishkan. Whatever they did in the Mishkan, they did also the, the what's it called, the Hakamim listed it over here as one of the 39 Melachot. So in the Mishkan, you can divide up the important things they did in Mishkan into four categories. Category number one, making the bread. Category number two, making the cloth covers. Don't worry, we're going to explain everything in a second. We're just listing it for you. Category number three, is making the leather covers of the Mishkan. And finally, category, category number four is the actual structure, the making of the structure of the Mishkan. Again, these are the four categories, and I will tell you how many melachot in each category. Category number one, making the bread. That has under it 11 melachot. In category number two, this is the largest one, which is the making of the cloth covers of the Mishkan. There's 13 melachot. In category number three, which is making the leather covers, that's, this is the smallest one, there's seven melachot. And finally, category number four, which is making the structure of the Mishkan, there are eight melachot. As a side point, sorry to go off tangent a little bit, but I think it's very, very nice. If you look in the halachot of how we should uh, make tzitzit, you know, we as men, we're supposed to wear tzitzit, and the tzitzit, we're supposed to, like we mentioned last week, we're supposed to have, you know, the, the main string spinning around or tied up, we make basically rings on each corner. When the tzitzit come out, there's, if you look closely, there's rings over there that are 
that are spun around the tzitzit. And we hold, you know, as the menhag is, we make 39 strings. And the way it's broken up is the same way that the melachot are broken up. 7, 8, 11, 13. We start with 7, then 8, then 11, 13. So too, the four categories of the melachot of Shabbat, we find that they contain the same amount of melachot. For the making of the bread, there's 11. For making of the cloth, there's 13. Making the leather covers is 7. And making the structure of the Mishkan, there's 8 melachot. Again, 7, 8, 11, 13. As we explained last week, that Shabbat also and Tzitzit are connected. Here's another connection. Now we have to understand what's exactly going on over here in the four categories. What were they done with? What were they for? So the first 11 categories, the first 11 categories, we listed it, we called it making the bread. This is actually a mahlokit, Rishonim. The Gemara talks about plowing, planting, and everything that takes up to cooking or baking. So there's a mahlokit, Rishonim, of what was what was the purpose of all of that? Why did they plow? Why did they plant? What were they planting? What were they trying to do? So some opinions hold that all these melachot were done for the sake of producing the dye. That's a color. That's producing the, the, the dye that they used to paint the covers of the Mishkan. As we know that there were different colors that they needed to use in the, in the, to, uh, in the making of the covers of the Mishkan. So where did they get these colors from? Yeah, you take certain fruits and you, you cook them in a certain way and then you get the color that you need. So in order to get the plants, you have to harvest, you have to plant. That's one way of explaining it. Another way of explaining it is that these 11 melachot were the 11 steps required for the making of the lechem apanim. Lechem apanim in the Mishkan, the Torah says that there was something called the shulhan, right opposite the menorah. The shulhan, if you ever see pictures of this, it's a table, the golden table, with double stack of six shelves each on each stack. And over there was the showbread, lechem apanim. You listen to the 15-minute parashah summary that they play on Jay Root, parashah Tirma, there he discusses the details of the shulhan. So that lechem apanim, that bread that they put over there, they call it the showbread, this lechem apanim, in order to produce bread, it took 11 steps. Plowing, planting, harvesting, and all the things as we'll explain. And we, for our sake, to make it easier, we're going to go with this opinion. Not that this is the majority or non-majority. Again, it makes no nafkamin, no, no difference. Either way, the melachot al-asur. But just to make it simpler, we're going to use that, melach, that, that approach. That the first 11 melachot were the 11 melachot needed to make the lehma panim, the showbread in the mishkan. Now, category number two, which has 30 melachot, we said that's making the cloth covers. The, these 30 melachot were done for production of the cloth covers. To give you a little bit of background, again, more you'll find in, in the parasha summary, the 15-minute parasha summary on, um, on the, that's played on Jerud, parasha Terumah. You should know that there's, in the Ohl Mu'ayd in the Mishkan, when they were in the desert, the Torah tells us, the parasha Terumah, that there were covers that were used to cover what's known as the Ohl Mu'ayd. The Ohl Mu'ayd was the place which stored the Mizbayah HaZahab, the golden altar, that's where the menorah stood, that's where the shohan stood, and that's also where the Aron stood as well. Okay? So now, the covers on top of it, there was no, you know, most of us, our roofs are made out of concrete, or metal and concrete, whatever it may be. The roof in the, in the Mishkan was made out of different covers. There were, there's a mahlok, how many covers were there? Three or four. We didn't go with the opinion that says four. There were four covers 
that were in the Mishkan. We're going to list them from the lowest one. That means when you're standing on the inside, the first layer that you'd see to the uppermost layer. The first cover was called the Yari'ot of the Mishkan. Those were cloth covers made out of material. The cover on top of that, the second layer, was something that the Torah calls Yari'ot Azim, which is good hair covers. The third layer of, a, of covers, which made up the roof of the Mishkan, the Torah calls it Orot Elim Me'odamim. Those are red dye covers f- from the hides of rams. And finally, the ones on top of that, according to Rabbi Nehemiah, like the opinion that we're going with, there was Orot Tehashim, a certain specific animal that was created only for the sake of the Jewish people in the desert, was called the Tahash. They took from its hide and they used it as one of the covers as well. So the third cat, the second category of milachot, which is making the cloth covers, that will include many things that have to do with sewing and weaving and all the different things. But that again, Mishkan was done to put the first layer of covers on the Mishkan, on the main part of the sanctuary known as the Ohel Mu'ayd. The third category, which is categorized as making the leather covers, we mentioned already. There were. Some of the covers that were used to cover the Mishkan were made from the hides of rams. So that's leather. So in order to process leather, there were seven steps, seven melachot, and those fall under the, under the third category, which is making the leather covers. And find the last one, the last category, which is making the actual structure, eight melachot were done for the setup of the Mishkan, setting up and taking down the Mishkan. We know the Mishkan was portable. Wherever the Jewish people travel, when they travel, they had to take down all the parts of the Mishkan. And then whenever they came, they would set it all back up. So there were eight melachot that were done in the actual construction of the Mishkan. Those are the final eight melachot. We'll get to them when we get to them. Let's go now to the Mishkan. To the, excuse me, to the third nine melachot. And we'll begin with the first melacha. Horish, plowing. What is the melacha of plowing? Remember, the definition is very, very important. Translated as plowing, plowing had a purpose. Plowing the field in order to prepare it for planting. That is the av melacha of horish. Again, plowing the field for the sake of planting. How was this done in the Mishkan? Well, you should know the first 11 were all done as a setup for the bread. So the first thing that they did was they softened up the ground, right? By plowing it, by, you know, they, they take like a, like a hoe. It's a metal object. You stick it into the ground and you just turn it and it makes the ground softer. This is what they did in order to plant the seeds, which eventually will be wheat kernels and eventually will be turning into bread. Now you're going to ask me a question. Tama, hold on. Where was the Mishkan? In the desert. In the desert, Rabbi, I don't know if you've ever visited the desert. No, I actually have not. I don't think you have either, but okay. But in the desert, we know from pictures, it's all sand. It was all sand. How in the world are you telling me there was plowing it for the sake of building the Mishkan when the Jews had the Mishkan only in the desert? Or that's where they made it. That's where we learned it from. And there's no plowing in sand. Sand is not a, it's not a fertile place. So there are many answers to this. One of the answers is, I believe the Orachayim brings it down, is that that was part of the miracle. Is that when they, we all know that in the Midbar, in the desert, they had something called the Be'er Maryam. 
the well of Miriam. The well of Miriam produced or pro uh, provided, supplied the Jewish people with water. Part of that also is that miraculously, this besides supplying them with water, it made also the sand fertile like dirt, and they were able to plant plants and trees and everything else that they needed to do. That's part of the miracle that they had over there in the, when they were living in the desert. This is one of the answers that's given. If you want a less um, a miraculous answer, a simple answer is that since these are the steps that are needed in order to make true, they had the bread maybe miraculously made, but since these are the steps anyway that's needed to plant in order to get the bread, so although maybe it wasn't done in the Mishkan according to this opinion, but still this is a step that's necessary and that's why it falls under one of the 39 Melachot. So what's it told that of this? What's it told that of Horesh? And the answer is, like we said in our introduction, filling in holes in the dirt floor. So you have your backyard, and you want to make the floor even. Even though you're not doing it for the sake of planting, you're just filling in the, the, the holes in the dirt floor. That makes it, that's already a toladan. It's also assumed the oraita. Now, here are two examples, practical applications. By the way, I just want to, point out, my examples of the melacho, of these halachot are not mine. They're all from either Shohan Aruch or Poskim. I try to bring examples that everybody agrees on. When not everybody agrees on, I try to point it out. So, let's start like this. There's a halacha in Shohan Aruch that Maran brings down. He brings it, it seems to be, the, according to the rules that we have of Maran, it seems to be the opinion of Maran, according to many Poskim, most Poskim, that is, and for Sfaradim, this is a halacha, you're not allowed to sweep your backyard if it has a dirt floor. That means if your backyard is all cemented or where the, uh, the area where it's cemented, it's dirty, you're allowed to sweep it on Shabbat. But if you have an area, it could be your backyard, it could be your front yard, but if you have a grass area, or even if you, there's no grass, but just dirt, and you're waiting for the, uh, the guy to come and put in the grass for you or the plants for you, and let's say it gets dirty over there, you're not allowed to take a broom and sweep the dirt floor over there. That's a problem with Hazal or Gozel, something known as, as Vegumot, because you might turn out the field. Now that's Halakha number one. That might be a little simple, but the next one is a lot of people are not familiar with, and it's a hard time. According to most poskim, Shohan Aruch, he brings down that sponja is Asuron Shabbat. Israelis know what sponja is. We don't have it so much in America. In Israel, they have a few, most floors in Israel, they don't have carpet. Most people in their apartments, they have uh, a drain right in the middle of the, of the living room, of the kitchen, or whatever it may be. So what they do is they clog it up, they seal it up like the way you would seal your bathtub, and then they would f just open up the, 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 the hose of water, or they just put water all over the floor, wash the entire floor, and then they take out the, the clog from the drain, and they just sweep it all down, and this is how they clean their floors. It's forbidden. That's Asur. That's Asur on Shabbat. If there's a little bit of dirt or if there's a little bit of water that's spilled and you want to clean it, that's fine. But to take water and to wash your floor, which is tiles, it's only tiles. We're not talking about, you know, dirt floor. We're talking about just regular tiles. That's Asur Midrabanan. You might come to do the same and clean your uh, uh, part of the, your house that is uh, made out of dirt. Does everybody agree to this? There are some kulot, but in general, this is halakha. This is asur. 
You're not allowed to do sponge. You're not allowed to wash your floor, your tile floor, even your tile floor on Shabbat. If it's very necessary to tell a goy to do it, then you should ask your rabbi. There are heterim in certain circumstances. But in general, that's what's asur. This is the melacha of Horesh. Let's move on to second melacha. The melacha of Zoraya. What is the definition of Zoraya? The Zoraya means the initiation or promotion of plant growth in any way. Again, the initiation or promotion of plant growth in any way. Let me make it a little bit simple English. That means if you're causing anything to grow, any plant to grow, or even if it's already planted, you're not causing it, you're enhancing, you're allowing it to grow better. Anything that you do to allow it to grow better, that's called Zoraya. The simple way it was done in the Mishkan was, after they plowed the field, they took seeds, they threw them in the ground, and they waited until they took root, and then they started growing, and thus you have, boom, you have a wheat stalk. What? One, one of the magics of nature. Good? Zoraya is not only in just throwing the seeds, but if you enhance it, that's also called Zoraya. If you're enhancing something to go, it's also called Zoraya. Some of the Toldas will be, like we explained beforehand, pruning. When things are not growing well, so you're taking out the bad plants, you're, taking out, you're, you're cutting off the bad branches to allow the other branches to grow better, that's a tolada of Zoraya. I didn't plant anything. Zoraya means to plant. Yeah, but it's the same idea. Because the purpose of Zoraya is to promote or to enhance the growth of something. Here you're enhancing the growth of the different branches of the tree. That's a melacha of Zoraya. Another example, which is more practical, watering your field. For a person to go with or his hose and to water his garden where there's grass growing or even where things could grow or around his trees, that's also an isud de oraita, tolada, but again, it's an isud de oraita of zoraya. Practical application of this halakha, let's say it's a summer and people want to eat in the backyard and they're sitting on the garden in the grass area and they want to eat over there. You have to be careful not to wash your hands over there. A lot of times people are tired so they want to do, you know, they don't want to get up. They want to do netilatadai on the spot, especially if you're eating in the backyard. Oh, to get off the chair. It's already hard enough to walk all the way from your living room to the kitchen to wash your hands. But now you're asking the guy to get up, to get up all the way from his chair, to get up and to walk three steps to go into the house of the kitchen. Shame you more. He's enjoying the sun, leave the guy alone. So a lot of people want to wash their hands. Or sometimes my mahrim before the meal. Okay, I understand. It's, you know, it's three times washing each hand, it, it's, it's a lot of water to bring out. But sometimes, it's all a little bit, all you have to wash is up to your knuckle. So a lot of people will, will do it, and they'll do it under the table. That cannot be done on Shabbat. Spilling out water, even though you're doing it for the sake of washing your hand, but since it's automatically going to fall on the dirt floor, then you cannot wash your hands over any dirt area in your backyard, or if it's not your backyard, that will be Asur on Shabbat. Another example... Maybe people are not familiar with this. Is a person has flowers, a person has, let's say, a bouquet of flowers, and they're out of the water. As long as the flowers could still open up, they still have a chance to open up more. Even when we buy the flowers, you see that they they can still open up more. And when you keep them in water and you really know how to take care of them, they open up much more. So that the Ramah brings down, and we also hold way, the Kafahim also holds this way, is that you cannot put a bouquet of flowers or even one rose inside of water. That's asur. What you could do is, 
that you for hadasim again this is a problem with flowers but hadasim let's say you know that's the myrtle branches that uh, either we use on Sukkot or people use it on Le Shabbat to make if you have hadasim that were in the water prior to Shabbat and you took them out of the water to make you want to put them back in the water that is permitted but flowers if they were in the water before Shabbat to put them back in the water on Shabbat is forbidden not the writer did a banan but still it's asur I remember once we had such a case we invited a person who was uh, not observant yet was not observant at all we invited him for Friday night in our house and this is the time when I was still in my parents house and we're, we're all single me and my siblings were all single still and the person came out of you know out of a little bit of gratitude Hakarata told he was fine he was invited to somebody's house for Le Shabbat he was a person from Israel who was living here by himself he came to the house, Shabbat, we're waiting for him, waiting for him. It's already Shabbat, Friday night, we all came back from the shul, waiting for him. Where is he? Finally, he shows up with a bouquet of flowers. Shabbat Shalom. Here, I bought you guys flowers. I hope you like them. And okay, so he carried on Shabbat. Okay, leave that alone for a second. But now he took the flowers. So he says, yeah, put them in water. You know, they'll be nice. And usually, you know, somebody brings you flowers. You put them on the table. out of Especially we didn't have flowers at the time for our regular flowers. So but we, we couldn't put them in the water. We didn't know what to do. We had to put them in the kitchen, pretend like, oh. So he walked in he, to wash his hands. He saw the flowers. He said, why don't you put them in? And forget about it. It's a whole thing. You have to give a whole shir not to get to explain it. But that's halakha. You cannot put flowers in water because they'll open up more. That is the milakha of Zoraya. Looking in the time, we have five more minutes. Let's get to the next milakha. Milakha number three. That is kotzer. The category of kotzer. What is kotzer? The translation of kotzer means harvesting. But the definition of kotzer is uprooting or detaching any plant from its source of growth. Okay? That is kotzer. It's not only just, you know, harvesting. Harvesting might sound like something that only you do in the field and that's it. It's not shaykh to us. No, no, no. If you uproot or detach anything from its source of growth, it's also a problem of kotzer, as we'll soon see. In the Mishkan... After the wheat stalks already grew, then they needed to harvest these wheat stalks in order to go to the next step to prepare them for the lehma panim. The tolda of this, the tolda of uprooting or detaching a plant from its source of growth, is if a guy goes to a tree and he starts shaking up the tree, so the let's say he has an apple tree. So he says, I'm not going to pick the apples off the tree, but you know what? I'm going to shake up the tree. He starts going to the tree and he starts shaking, shaking, shaking the apples or the apple tree and then the apples fall off the tree. He says, oh, I didn't do it. It fell by itself. No, that's called, that's a tolda. It's also assumed the right. You have a korban on that because you're detaching it. Although you're not doing it in the same way they did it, they harvested by taking uh, either a sickle or whatever it is and a knife and they, they cut off the, brand, the, the wheat stalks. You're shaking up the tree, but still you're doing the same purpose. You're detaching a plant from its source of growth. A practical halakha of this is that we all know that you're not, allowed to ride an, you're not allowed to ride an animal on Shabbat, like a horse, a donkey, even if it's a completely closed area, you're not allowed to ride animals on Shabbat. The gezera, this is asumid dirabana, hachamim wa gozer. The reason why hachamim wa gozer is because usually in order to, to make the horse move or the animal move, you need a branch to whack the animal with it and it'll start moving. So Sahakami was scared that when you ride the animal, you might not realize because you want the animal to move. So you go and break a branch off the tree. And the breaking the branch off the tree that you need, that's going to be a problem of Kotzer. So this whole issue of riding animals 
comes from this gezerah, under this category of kotzer. Another thing that's a practical halakha, we're not allowed to climb on a tree on Shabbat. For the same reason. It's assuming that Rabbanah to climb on a tree because Shema Yiksor, you might pull off a branch. Also, you cannot use a tree in any way. You can't even hang things on a tree. All under the same category of Melechet Kotzer. It might come to lead to uh, harvesting. What's harvesting? And that is detaching the branch of the tree. So therefore, one is not allowed to use a tree in any way. You can't lean on it. You can't hang up your jacket on it. You can't put things on it. You can't put your child on it. One is not allowed to use a tree on Shabbat and all again falls under the category of Kotzer. We must stop here. We're up to the fourth Melachah, the Melachah of Me'amer. Next week, as I said, we hope to continue in the Melachot. Again, I don't know if we'll finish up all the Melachot, but we'll try to do as much as we can on a pace that, like we said again, you're not going to get the full, full details of the Melachot over here. You're going to just get a sample of them, a little taste of what, what, uh, what is Asur and what's not Asur on Shabbat. The full details will come, as I said, when we go back to the Benish High and we learn these Halachot inside. So, we will conclude with a thank you to Iran. Thank you to Rav Nisim for hosting us. Thank you for everybody for listening. If you have any questions, please call into the station right now. I'll be here for the next few minutes. 718-683-5858. And if you text me already, I know I didn't reply yet. I'll reply through text. And you can also text in 347-927-8398. Always, you could email us. You can email me personally at halakhahour at gmail. H-A-L-A-C-H-A-H-O-U-R at gmail.com. This comes to me directly. I don't promise an immediate answer, but I promise to put an effort to try to give you an answer as soon as I can. And uh, till then, have a wonderful week. And for those who are traveling, um, we'll miss you, but not so much because we'll be more parking, but really enjoy your summer. Have a safe summer. You can always listen through the phone at uh, 718-506-9199 or through the website, jrootradio.com or of course, the Jadu Radio Pro app. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. We're at the same. We'll continue these halachot of the melechot.